you say good place to start, you mean terrifying fucking place to start. I haven't. Yeah, I'm, let's go. <laughs> are, are we are we getting into that? I'm. I, I guess fuck it. We can get into that. Yeah, whatever it, you if want. It, if it terrifies me afterwards, I can cut it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the good thing about it. Um, well, first, welcome everybody who's listening. I have on here my dear friend Eleanor from Seminary, who is now she's waving, but you all only have audio. I, but I do, I can <laughs> confirm that she is in fact waving. But yeah, we went to Seminary together, and now she is in Philly. And I think was saying that you're looking at getting into a CPE program is like where the arc of your vocational journey has taken you. Yeah. Last time you all heard from her, if you all were uh, privy to The Godly Communist, my previous podcast I did with Tom Emanuel, we had uh, Eleanor on there. I think I was just there. I don't, I don't think Tom was with us. I think it was just me and Eleanor. You were about to gallivant off to India and do Swedenborgian Hindu shit. And that's mainly what we talked about there and the particular figure that you were kind of following in his lineage, basically. I don't know. I mean, I'm curious about what will happen with that shit because I literally haven't talked to you, you know, since then. Or we can talk about where our conversation was right before I press record, which well, was. Well, let, let's start. Let's start with kind of I. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Philadelphia right now and I am looking to do a CPE program as part of my ordination track. So that's kind of where I'm angling myself right now. Ordaining with the Swedenborgian community? The Swedenborgian or? Church. Yeah. And um, at some point, give us a little bit of background because new podcast, people don't right, know, uh, right, people know what right. Swedenborgianism is. <laughs> Which is a very so, dope thing, I assure you. So Emanuel Swedenborg is a 18th century Swedish scientist and theologian. That's kind of the tagline. And he, for the first half of his life, he was one of the most gifted and at his time famous scientists in Europe. He was mainly employed as his job description was as an assessor of mines. And so he was mainly uh, his job description as, through some specific like institution through the Swedish royal family. Um, Fair. Okay. They, they, <laughs> they Different times. The largest copper mine at the time in Europe, which produced about a third of the world's copper, which was a, a mine called Fallon. And in the in the previous century, there had been this massive collapse where the the entire mine had been like completely riddled with with tunnels and completely unstable, and the whole thing had collapsed. And it was this really weird thing. Because it happened on Midsummer's Eve, which was the one day of the year when there were no miners. So it was like this really weird, weird thing that happened. And the whole of the Swedish economy basically depended on this mine. So Swedenborg was hired in his 20s to be the engineer who made sure that the mine didn't collapse again. So okay. he was very close to the king and had some very, had some very, uh, Spicy, spicy opinions on the character of the king. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but then halfway through his life, Swedenborg, he, 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 he basically studied any branch of the sciences that he could get into, but his love of like physics and engineering eventually evolved into a love of, of what at the time was called yantro mechanics 
which are, which is basically the geometry of consciousness. And this is actually a field. Oh, real quick. Let me interrupt you real quick. I was digging the background music while we were chit-chatting. Let's cut that off. Okay. We had some nice little light jazz going as we were yeah. uh, doing some pre-production, folks. But, okay. <laughs> so he was studying geomancy. What was it again? No, <laughs> um, yantra mechanics. Which yantra are, mechanics. Uh, okay. Yantra with an I. I-A-N-T-R-O mechanics. And he got really fascinated in this question of the interaction between the soul and the body. And so he started doing really deep studies into anatomy and how the brain works and kind of how consciousness exists in the body. So um, he came in through, through the very specifically scientific angle yeah. at first. Um, so this is like 1740s. And then around 1745, he has this massive kind of spiritual awakening slash mental breakdown. And he starts... <laughs> like you do. Like you do. Um, and he, um, he starts producing this massive volume of theological works. And so... I was raised Swedenborgian. So my family got into the Swedenborgian church in the 1790s. And since then, every generation has had a Swedenborgian minister in it. So we so we're in this thing like deep. <laughs> and so I was raised in a town called Brynathen, which is north of Philadelphia, that is an entirely Swedenborgian town. And so, and they have their own school system. They have their own like massive cathedral on top of a hill. Uh, it's like deep in, in spooky woods. And so you can basically grow up in Bernathen and never have contact with the outside world. And I grew up in Bernathen and was there until like my first year of college. And then after my first year of college, I, I wanted to, to go to school at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. So I started studying figure painting and I had been studying figure painting since I was a little kid, but I eventually. And I'll include some links for folks that are listening. Eleanor is a very, very gifted visual artist, so it'll be very cool for folks who haven't been exposed to her work. Uh, I'm I literally see. looking at a bondage Loki behind her right now, um, <laughs> a painting that is yeah. just stunning, absolutely gifted artist. <laughs> but uh, I interrupted you. Keep going. Um, so so I, I started – kind of drifting away from the church and becoming really interested in like Asatru and uh, Nordic paganism. And, and apparently that's, that's how you pronounce Asatru. I always thought it was a Satru. Yeah. Um, Asatru. Because the Asa are okay. the gods. So it's ah. you're, you're true to the Asa. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so he, I'm pointing to the painting behind me, was one of nine paintings that were all the same size. And so he's the bottom middle piece. And then there were two more and there were like six on top. So it was this huge altarpiece thing that I did. And I did like a deep dive into the poetic Edda. And that was my big senior thesis. So I kind of drifted away from Swedenborg for a while. 
And at the same time, I also had this love of yoga. And a lot of the painting that I was doing, I was specifically interested in what I was calling interoceptive painting or kind of painting the body from the body's perspective, like painting the body from the inside out. And so I started producing like this huge amount of works just from this perspective. And which has got a vibe sort of similar to what's that guy's name? It's like Alex something or another psychedelic. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely got a, for me, um, it's got an Alex Gray vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of kind of psychedelic artists that do these kind of deconstructions of the body, but it's also, I mean, it relates to cubism. So that was really what I was primarily responding to. I was looking at things like Brock and and Pico and they take the approach of looking from at the figure and looking at the figure from different angles, but they're still looking from the outside. And then that kind of evolves historically into Marcel Duchamp and his nude descending a staircase, which is kind of the only painting that he does in that style. But that painting totally captivated me. And I saw it as the first example of an interoceptive painting of a painting that was about the experience of descending a staircase and the feeling of, of moving through your body and having your body move through air. I'm going to look it up while you're talking. Keep going. And, and so I can see, so I can see it. Yeah. Look it up. And so this painting is in the Philadelphia museum of art. So I saw it when I was very young and started kind of asking these questions when I was very young. Because I think that there's a um, there's a visual kind of interoception, but there's also a narrative kind of interoception. And Dude, this is crazy. Isn't okay. that a cool painting? And, and I see and I see how it influenced your work. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so and so there's different there's different types of huh. of interoception. Um, you can do interoception visually. You can do interoception like interoceptive meditation from whence you get interoceptive imagery. And that question led me into the question of yoga because basically I was using the Nordic system as an interoceptive system, as a kind of means for mapping out the space of my own mind and my own body. And using, I got, I got really fixated and have been all, all my life with the idea of Yggdrasil and the sacrifice. The idea of, of so oh, the, 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 the tree. The world tree. And there's this line in the Havamal where he says, Ween I hang from that windy ash for nine whole days and nights, myself to mine own self given. And... That line, myself to mine own self given. I like focused in on, on that one line and it became like this mantra for me. Yeah, unpack that a little is, bit for me. It's interesting. Into, into what we were talking about earlier. Which is the devil, by the way. Just, Which is the devil. <laughs> just spoiler, the devil. spoiler, the devil. And, okay, and keep going. And more than the devil is ideas of dualistic good and evil. Right, right, of and, course. And is it really useful to have a like a good god and a bad god? <laughs> good boys and <are> bad boys. <laughs> right, right. 
And it's and this gets to I, I mean questions of theodicy, but also questions of dualism and non-dualism. And so you have systems all over the world that come to this point where the dualistic good versus evil narrative kind of falls short and you get to the Rumi quote which I don't know if it's an actual Rumi quote there's a field beyond good and evil and I'll meet yeah. you there yeah and that's that's the type of spirituality that really appeals to me is something that get shocks you out of a paradigm and that's why there's just something about a skull and I'm, I'm holding my skull <laughs> and forgetting that I'm not on camera. <laughs> All right. But there's something very healing about darkness. And if you completely reject darkness from your spirituality, what you get is tainted light. Hmm. That's a banger. <laughs> that line. Yeah. Cause, cause you, cause, because you end up having to kind of, put evil like in competition with good right right well and you have to yeah. compartmentalize god yeah yeah and you have to limit god. i mean for those of us that are theistic and for those of us that i mean i don't know if this applies to you but like i believe in providence and i believe yeah. in omnipotence and i believe in omniscience and all that shit and, and most theists do right <sighs> particularly of the abrahamic variety but i mean i guess also like hindu folk like people of yeah. indian you know spirituality but if you say so you believe all that, but then you're unwilling to reconcile with theodicy that you mentioned earlier, which is to yeah. say the existence of suffering and evil and bullshit over and against the idea that we have a good God. If you don't wrestle with that, instead you do that bifurcation of the duality of the good God and the bad God, you compartmental. I mean, you can't, for me, you can't have both. You have to pick one, you know, and it's the, it may be the most easiest thing said rather than done. <laughs> of like how do you how do you have theism and how do you walk through the valley of theodicy and come out the other side still intact or with your theism specifically still intact because i think the move for most well either you do that bifurcation thing right you have duality right and you have you have the the bad lucifer character or you have the bad loki character you have the bad um the gin or, you know, whatever your fucking fancy is, right? You either do that or you have to, you have to water. Let me not use that phrase. You have to become an agnostic or an atheist or something. You have to, you have to right. take your, you have to take your faith down a peg to reconcile with the real fucking suffering of this world. And the, the Swedenborgian approach to that, which I, which I really like is to, to kind of psychologize it. And particularly in the sense of, you know, a narrative that we have a story with a good guy and a bad guy. And the Swedenborgian approach is to say, well, if you look inside of yourself, what you actually see is a multiplicity. What you actually see is a whole bunch of different spiritual forces that are all in competition and you kind of have to sort your way through. And so, you know, there are all of these characters that exist in the Bible are part of you. But then there's another leap, which is where I really this I sacrifice myself to myself thing, where a lot of Christian traditional Christianity will not allow the soul 
to elevate itself up to a point where it can actually kind of dissolve and see that itself is part of God. And well, so they, this, we bifurcate ourselves from God yes. there too. Yes. And, and then, I mean, little little pet peeve, not pet peeve, pet project, tangent, whatever. And that's tied up with the devil. That's tied up with darkness. Like, if we, if darkness can't be a part of God and we can't be, be a part of God, well, guess what, baby? You know, like, you are, you're wrestling with morality and with yeah. theodicy. Is, it's going to have a particular tenor because yeah. of the way that you've constructed, I mean, because fancy of the way that you see yourself. Because the way you see yourself and the way that you see life. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you start with this Tatvamasi principle, this okay. this non-dualist principle, this thou art that principle, and I think this phrase from the Eddas that I keep going back to, I sacrifice myself to myself, is saying Tatvamasi. It's saying it's saying I am that which I am worshiping, and it's saying that by by hanging himself from the tree, by scooping out his eye, by standing in front of the fire, by doing all of these symbolic huh. actions, yeah. Odin is getting to the point where he dissolves that distinction. And he's opening himself up to the celestial experience. And the, the symbol of the tree and why it's a tree and why, you know, trees are spiritual in almost every single culture around the world right, right. Um, has to do with, it goes back to this idea of interoception. That when you look inward, what do you see? Do you see something that is polluted by original sin? Do you, do you, see, do you see something that is fundamentally, like, flawed and broken and unworthy of divine love? Or do you see something that has that deep internal spark, that has that deep internal light, and then is being affected by, you know, the consequences of the world? And I really think that's one of the, that's one of the things that Swedenborg starts to challenge. He doesn't quite get there. He doesn't quite have the language and the way of talking about, like, ego and self that we get from Eastern traditions. But what he does is he kind of primes the pump for Western spiritual seekers to be able to start translating um, these concepts. And what you see is within Swedenborgism, this was talking, what I was talking about the last time I was on, you have, you know, for the first time, like Western Christians start reaching out to the rest of the world with more curiosity than dominion. And it wasn't perfect. Like, you know, there were, there was a lot of Orientalism and a lot of weird, whatever, but white people bullshit. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but they were oh, you know, a lot white better people than bullshit. every other Christian organization. Right. <laughs> You know, and, uh, brief, brief, and you brief tangent, trauma. brief tangent on trees. Yeah. I, I don't think about it consciously a lot because it's almost like this. It's it's a given for me that trees had a really big part. My story is that trees had a really big part in my initial spiritual experience, my quote unquote mystical awakening, if we want to frame yeah. it that way. 
So I was going through this terrible depression in 2000 and 2007, 2008. And um, one of the things that happened in the midst of that terrible depression was I couldn't hardly set inside of a building, like inside of my home, right? It just, yeah. it made me worse, right? I got stir yeah. crazy, right? I got cabin fever, I got stir crazy. And so I took up this practice of like just sitting on my porch and being depressed rather than sitting in my living room. Mm-hmm. And I would sit and I lived in the sticks in North uh, Florida in, uh, <laughs> in Hoodow, Florida at the time. And I would just stare at the trees. Like it was, I mean, it was probably my body and my spirit, yeah. like knowing better than I knew of like, baby, go sit outside and go be with your aunties and your uncles, basically. And, yeah. um, and I would just stare at the trees for hours on end because it was, I mean, it kept me from destroying myself. I mean, is what it did. And so however many months you know, later when I had this really profound, transcendent, fucking kind of Abrahamic, mystical, non-dualistic thingy that happened that didn't feel pagan or didn't feel tree or didn't feel like whatever. No, I mean, it felt the way I just described it. Yeah. But when I when I woke up the next day, like just a thing that was just it was just a given to me. It's like, oh, my aunties and my uncles, they like fucking help me like they help gr- took me by my little dumb fucking hand because I'm a little dumb fucking kid. Right. And they're like, come on, yeah. baby. Like, I know the girl left you. I know your mama died. <laughs> and I know this is your, you feel like this is your first time around the bush. But we got you. Just just come on. And and to this I- day, like. Uh, last thing on it to this day when when i'm outside i'll just like gaze at a tree and it's it's just it's really sweet and it's really subtle and it's this little of like i i can see divinity there in this yeah just like in a how do you say i'm gonna put on my woo hat hat. um disclaimer Um, I didn't realize your woo hat was ever off, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) I have a bigger woo hat. Okay. Um, (laughs) I can't even see her anymore now because there's just a huge hat. hat. Um, So my bigger woo hat says that, like, I think trees taught us to think. Go on. I think that if you look at the structure of brains... They're fractal and dendritic. And if you look at the structure of the cerebral cortex and the white matter, it's a tree. And so when you, when evolution is happening, you know, the first, the first wave is plants and then the animals come after the plants and the plants operate according to these fractal patterns and i think you know the physical brain works like that but i also think the mind works like that the mind the mind makes associations through this kind of patterning through these kinds of internally repeating bifurcating like chaotic systems and that's how minds are so unique you know, we don't, our brains don't develop based on like a hard genetic code. Our brains develop epigenetically. So the, the amount of real estate that we have for a given sensory system is based on how much input we're putting into the system. And this works really fast. 
like faster than anyone thought before. One of my favorite studies, they put just a bunch of like, you know, probably normative white dudes and they blindfolded them, non-visually impaired. And they blindfolded them and they put them in an fMRI machine and they gave them a tactile task. So something that they could would just do with their hands. 40 minutes. 40 minutes is how long it takes for their visual cortex to start processing tactile somatic information. And so when we're talking about like how our minds and our thoughts develop and how we get ourselves out of these maladaptive patterns like depression, you know, it's all about how, how do we manipulate this complex system of inputs and outputs, which is so much more plastic than anyone ever thought that it really is like, you know, go touch grass for 40 minutes. We'll actually change your brain. We'll actually change. And, and there's something really revolutionary about this idea. And this was one of the big things that Swedenborg actually like leapt forward on because he was studying the brain and he was a hundred years at least before anyone else. He just intuitively understood things about neuroanatomy that we're only just confirming now. And so at the beginning or before his, his enlightenment, he was uh, in the 1740s, he was traveling all over Europe, gathering neuroanatomy notes and put together this huge tome. And he, the last bit that he writes in the work on the brain is kind of, it's very similar to like the 18th century version of the DSM where it's a text on neuropathology, where he goes into like, here, I have it right here. This is one of like three copies of it in the world. And I nabbed it. So paralysis, epilepsy, depression, mania, alcoholism. And what he was doing, and he never publishes this, but what he was doing was he was essentially refuting the Cartesian model. He was refuting du- dualism because Descartes was all about like the soul is connected to the body through the pineal gland. This is where all the bullshit pineal, pineal gland discourse or originates. So Descartes was obsessed with this or thought that the, the cerebrum itself did not have any effect on consciousness, but it was only connected to through the soul and all thought and feeling happened on another plane that was connected to the body through the pineal gland, because the pineal gland was the geometric center of the back of the brain. So what Swedenborg is doing is he's not only making an anatomical observation, he's also making a theological statement. He's making a statement that the church at the time really did not like because they had this stalemate with scientists where the scientists would not go into the realm of the soul. They wouldn't talk about behavior. They wouldn't talk about how trauma affects how you're acting 
because that would delegitimize what the church was trying to do, which was saying that whether or not you're saved, whether or not you're worthy of salvation is based on something that's up here in heaven and has nothing to do with the meat in your head. And Swedenborg's <laughs> saying, no, if you hit someone in their frontal lobe, it'll change oh. their behavior. Yeah. And, you know, and Bodies this is matter, all caused by matter. spiritist juices, what he called. <laughs> and so then what he does is he takes all of the spiritual world, all of that big, like, enormous like heavenly mythology that the catholic church has been the last thousand years thousand years building it up and he takes it and he puts it all inside the brain so it's still spiritual it's still like the spirits and the angels and the demons are all in there but they are mapped to individual neurons and our external trauma literally like he literally like one for one like like neurons well he didn't have a good enough he didn't have a good enough microscope to see actual neurons but he but he he thought he he thought they were located in physical structures he thought they they corresponded to physical corresponded yeah so there was a there's a one-to-one relationship so instead of you know the cartesian model is that there's the spiritual plane up here and the natural plane down here. And there's this one little point of contact. That's the human pineal gland. And then, you know, basically nothing else, everything else is separate for Swedenborg. Every single point of reality is a contact point. It's a contact point. And every single point of reality in the physical world is being, is causally, and correspondentially reflected in the spiritual realm. And he, and I assume he so, got accused of heresy at some point and pantheism. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Um, he and was actually, real quick to, real quick to Sweden at the time would have been Lutheran. Yeah. So he, uh, initially he was under Char- Charles the 12th. Okay. Who basically spent the last couple of years of his life trying to stop the collapse of the Swedish Empire. Okay. And Charles Twelfth was kind of considered very heroic by a lot of his men and uh, was thought of as kind of the last warrior king. And Swedenborg, Swedenborg hated the guy. And he goes <laughs> on and on in his journals about how he says <laughs> he was... He was like a serial sexual harasser, according to Swedenborg, okay. where he would like manipulate women in his household into having sex with him by like being a creep. And he would. And so Swedenborg says that he was so evil that they couldn't find a woman on Earth to be his partner in the afterlife. And he had to marry an <laughs> alien. <laughs> I love that Swedenborg, like when he like casts shade at people or like throws oh shade goodness, at people. So... Oh my god! Like I don't yeah. remember the details because I don't know Swedenborgian theology well. But like, but like him like taking shots at Paul and like the way he casts like Paul in the afterlife. Uh, so Fucking hilarious! He okay, gets, he he like <laughs> he like tracks Sir Isaac Newton down in the spiritual world, and he. Um, <laughs> has this argument about like the particle physics of light and whether, right? whether the color properties of light were associated 
with particles or waves. And this is like... <laughs> <laughs> he's not the mystic we asked for he's the mystic we needed yeah, jesus christ yeah. that's hilarious I know. like this is the shit he goes this is the shit that he astral projects to like go get in an argument about fucking particle physics that's hilarious oh there's so many there's so many hilarious Swedenborg moments he was he was actually a funny person which i don't think people give him enough credit for um, was he married, single? He was single. He he never he had he had a a woman who he was kind of engaged to, but the it didn't work out for some reason. So he he was a bachelor for most of his life, and um, he had and for the like the end part of his life, he had this incredible garden in the middle of Stockholm. And you can still, I think the house was torn down, but you can still go to the garden and his original like garden shed man cave is still there, <laughs> uh, which was like, his, it was his little writing shed. And he had, he had a loft for naps and a pipe organ <laughs> and a writing desk. <laughs> he sounds like a hobbit. <laughs> yeah. And this enormous enormous garden and he would let his the people who worked in his garden sell all the fruit for profit and he had a uh, a giant house with um an apiary in the middle of it or not an uh, an aviary sorry in the middle of it where he kept exotic birds um <laughs> like parrots <laughs> right, right. <Yeah. laughs> is there any? Not that I need to make the assertion, but is there any conjecture as to like an alternative sexuality on his behalf? Quote alternative. Um, I think he was pretty firmly heterosexual because he writes about sexual encounters with women okay. in his diary. But I think it was more that he was just a kind of a weirdo, and right. the, the married life was not like. Right. He was obsessed like he with what he was doing. Yeah, he was right, just right. he was just doing do, doing his thing, and I think he <laughs> kind of understood that you know it's someone else. But he did. He had a, a baroness who he was, you know, professed to love, but he never they never got married. And yeah. he he talks extensively. Like he's very he's not homophobic. He is heteronormative. He like like right. there are lots of Swedenborgians who take stuff that he says and use it for homophobic means, but he talks extensively about kind of the symbolic alchemical significance of like the sexual union of male and female. Right. right. And Swedenborgians kind of lift up this concept of conjugal love from him. You know, and which can be a very, very positive, like beautiful idea, but they use it in a way that kind of is is homophobic, unfortunately, because it's really I don't think it's in the text. He doesn't outright speak about gay people anywhere. Right. But fascinating, fascinating person. I forget well, what feel feel free in yeah, no worries. Feel free to either continue along the thread of Swedenborg, but we had got off on trees, and you were trees. talking about this specific line, the last line of some piece of poetry, some piece of um, right. scripture, and the windy ash. Yeah, and I'm curious if you could. I mean, go wherever you want to go with it, but 
to unpack a little bit, like what did it mean to you? Because when you say it, I don't even fully understand it, but something in me is like, yes, like, yes, that sentence, like yeah. there's something mythically relevant there. Yeah. Well, because you I said mean, it was like a, a turning point for you that it that it imprinted on you. Yeah. And I think it was. Um, so so Swedenborg has this idea of the proprium, which okay. is kind of unique amongst Christian scholars or like Christian theologians, because he he takes the proprium, which is a Latin word that means what is my own, the possessor, okay. mm-hmm. um, the, the self that forms attachments, to put it in Buddhist terms. And he puts the possessive ego in the place of the devil. Okay. And the way that he, or the way that, the way that I interpret his ex- explanations of this is it sets up a soteriology where what you are doing as a spiritual person is working through the things that you identify as part of yourself, which are not love. Because the other side of this equation is that if we have the part of our mind which forms attachments is the part of us that suffers, which is why he's called the Buddha of the North, is that concept. Then the other side of that is that the part of mm. us that is okay. us, which is not attached, is connected with the whole of the universe, which is the substance of God, which is a reflection of the higher, of the reality beyond what we perceive as our own possessive ego. Right, right. And so the duality is between the celestial self, which is formed of love and has this kind of loosely fitting illusory proprium around it, which is born for the sake of convenience. But deep down, the celestial self knows that only love is real. And the part of ourself which wants to own and control. And um, that's very different from most other forms of Christianity. Well, I mean, Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I guess this is my reading, right? Like, I think if you read Jesus closely, that's the fucking practice, right? Yeah. Of like, get rid of. I mean, he gave his. I mean, if we, he gave his life for love. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that's one way to like talk about his story, his life, his mission, his life, death, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Hmm. So I, you know, I, I, I kind of drifted away from Swedenborg. You know, I've explored all all the corners of the, not all the corners of the world, but I've, I've explored many diverse corners of the world of the spiritual universe which is more permitted in swedenborgianism yeah but it's funny because they are very enthusiastic about people inter about swedenborgians professed swedenborgians interpreting texts be outside of swedenborg 
than they are about non-Swedenborgians interpreting Swedenborgian texts according to their own hermeneutics. They don't like the latter. What they don't like the latter, and to to the point where you know, Gopal Chetty, who we were talking about last time, who was a uh, Swedenborgian Shaivite theologian, wrote a you know one of my favorite Swedenborgian theology books from a completely Hindu perspective, absolutely gorgeous book, could not get it published at a Swedenborgian publication. What do you think the the reticence is there? I think that there was a fear. There was a feeling that in the writings of Swedenborg, there was this kind of pure font, and anything that it touched with would would get would dilute it, would kind of would adulterate it in some way, and so you get <clears throat> ultimately you get kind of two different kind of perspectives in the church. You get on the one hand people who are very extroverted, who are, you know, inviting Swami Vivekananda to Chicago and kind of forming all of this like interfaith dialogue. And then you get people who are like, no, we need to build our own little enclave and just kind of concentrate as much as possible. And I really think that isolationist pattern has been really, really bad for the church. Because Swedenborg was a household name in 1900. Like, everyone knew who he was. He was wildly popular. And the the first big schism happens in 1885. The second big schism happens in 1915. And what you have are these little enclaves of the churches breaking off and getting smaller and smaller until it's like individual families. And it's there's this impulse to hold on to something so tightly that you end up strangling it. And I really, the places where I get really excited about seeing these ideas are where they're touching other things. And it's even, you know, there's a metaphor that Swedenborg uses over and over and over again, which is that he maps out heaven according to the human body. And he says that there are all different spirits, all different angels making up this body. And each angel has its own function. And, you know, loosely and not, and it's not directly like which religion you are. It's which, it's what do you love the most? And there are different religions that lead you to different types of love. And so there are people who are in, you know, what he calls the Christian heaven which I would say is the heaven of seeing God in in the divine human, not necessarily calling yourself Christian, but the heaven of Mm -hmm. that kind of sphere that you feel. Mm -hmm. And he equates that to the heart and lungs. So obviously a body can't survive without a cardiopulmonary system. You need that function within Mm -hmm. the world. But a cardiopulmonary system is also not a person. Right. And so what, what we've gotten over the years and what I see happening in Swedenborgian circles is that we are wanting to, you know, preserve a specific identity, preserve a proprial kind of idea of, of ourselves, we end up losing contact with stuff and we lose our circulation and then we start yeah. having heart failure yeah. and we start, you know, 
losing the, the feeling in our fingertips. And you know what else Swedenborg says? Swedenborg says that the Hindus are the skin. And at first I was like, well, that's kind of not a very nice thing to say, <laughs> saying that they're uh-huh. like the most external. It's the, And then I sat on that and that for a little bit. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. This is actually saying something really beautiful because Hindus are all about imminence. Hindus are all about the goddess existing here. Hindus are all about the power of the root chakra, the power of, of the ritual of like keeping things in the world. And and I personally had to go to Hindu thought for like Brahma and Atman for me to like have that framework of like, oh, I'm a chunk of God. And, yeah. you know, but yeah. And so with the skin, the skin of heaven is the face. It's the identity. It's the hands. It's what you can actually touch. You can actually interact with. You see heaven is human. And so and it's need... beauty too. Like think of the iconography of India, like, oh, the beauty right. of like Hindu and iconography. Course, and of course, any religion isn't just one part of these. Like a religion that's really healthy should have all of that DNA inside of it. Mm. And can then and then when you have that that perspective of, you know, we're 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 operating as the heart and lungs, but the heart and lungs have this interconnectivity with the identity of the whole body, then suddenly there's not a lot to fight over. And there's not and suddenly the point of religion is not who's going to be dominant. It's not who's going to take over the world. It's not who's going to it's how can we work together? It's how can it's how can we how can we build a society together? And so you look at you know Swedenborg's metaphors. And there's two different metaphors that I like to compare. There's the metaphor of the mountaintop, which you see so often, where there's many paths up the mountain, and you know as long as you're climbing the mountain, you're you don't worry about other people's paths, and that's great. But mountaintops are cold. They're inaccessible and not many people can stand on them at the same time. There's no food on mountaintops and uh, you probably shouldn't be going up there because you're just going to leave a bunch of trash and dead bodies. And uh, <laughs> But there's another metaphor, which is the one that Swedenborg uses over and over and over again, which is the metaphor of the city. And so the holy city is mm. not you know, a perfect grid of houses that all look exactly the same. You know, a healthy city has lots of different things in it and lots of different people in it. And they form a unified identity, which contains variety. And that's like the ultimate thing of the new church and why it's so revolutionary in the context of Christian dominionism is that we're saying that the most Christian thing you can do is Mm. let go. Mm. And that's really hard for us, people who are actually in the church. That's really hard for everyone. But that's, I think, the only way to be, you know, deeply spiritual and deeply free and deeply engaged in in these contexts and connected to the universe and God is if you just let that shit go. (laughs) No, 100%. And one of the things that along that lines with Christianity and it's so close to supersessionism. So it's a, it's a little hard to talk about, Yeah. but for me, part of Jesus's whole fucking project was an opening up. It wasn't a closing down. It was an opening up. 
And so then a lot of Christian theologians will take that and they do the supersessionist thing of like, oh, Jesus was a Jew, but he superseded the previous covenant and he installed this new covenant that supersedes the previous one. Fucking bullshit. It's like, no, like here was this guy living in occupation amongst, quote, pagans and then people that were Jewish that followed, you know, Yahweh. And here was this guy who wanted to break bread like next to people that were eating fucking pork next to people that were polyamorous next to people that had that were um polytheistic etc cetera, etc cetera. and he wanted to didn't want to he fucking chose to and um sex workers etc cetera, etc cetera, right yeah, yeah. that it was it was an opening up and now mind you the jesus that we received through orthodox western christianity he he was he was like located in his tradition it wasn't like he you know how do you say there was no boundaries to what he was doing but it was an opening up and you know it again he wasn't fighting it like he wasn't his in his tradition he existed in his, in his tradition and that was fine and what he did was he expanded the meaning of his tradition right and he helped his tradition grow and that's what you know because talking about the new church is so hard without getting into that kind of right secessionist right. discourse that you know and that's why like this thing of power which you know over and over again it's power is the ruling love in hell and that's you know <laughs> over and over again in swedenborg and yet you have swedenborgians another banger line <laughs> constantly trying to gain more power and constantly right. trying to to build up you know new church organizations that are going to like you know, con control things. And um, I think we have, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to bash the church because I think there are a lot of people who are really trying and are really, you know, have their priorities in order. But I also think that maybe we do put a little bit too much emphasis on how much we value looking Christian. Do you think that some of these different issues that you see in your denomination, your community, do you think that that is a vestige, so to speak, that originates in Christianity and their way of doing it? Or it's just like a reality, like a sociological reality that this is what religious groups do? I don't think it's a sociological reality, but I think I think to answer that question, I have to open up Swedenborg's idea of the progression of the churches, which is, you know, the same progression of the ages that he gets from Ovid's Metamorphosis. And so there's a, you know, the golden age, the silver age, the bronze age, the copper age. And Swedenborg takes Ovid's kind of historiography and places it over the Bible. But he said, what he says is that this history is actually something that shows up in biblical history and religious history because it exists first in the human mind, because this is how we naturally develop. And so I think that there is a natural developmental stage, which is a stage that worships power. And I think every single person goes through that. Right. And there's reflections of all of those stages in each one of them. And so it's not, it's not like a super cut and dry thing, but I think that the will to power is uh, something that needs to be acknowledged as a universal issue within human psychology. And at the same time, I think that there was 
something particularly corrupting in the moment when Christ becomes used to justify the dominion of the Roman Empire at right. the Council of Nicaea. Right. And I think right. that, that that moment had particular fallout for the way that individuals and nations and religions interacted, which we are still seeing the, yeah. the reflection of. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a unique moment where you have like monotheism and this sense of like dispensationalism or millennialism, the sense of like we are on a trajectory from point A to point B to to success. And then that gets married to empire. And then and the fucking the figurehead in Jesus is like this, like Quan Yin dude, you know, like this, like. Uh, overabundant compassion yeah 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 yeah. but then it's married with empire in that way and dominion in that way like yeah yeah, it's interesting to think that like it's not how do you say it's not novel to think this but it's interesting for me to think about it as you what's uniquely corrupting about that as someone who you know was born into a christian tradition and i I don't necessarily identify as Christian anymore, but some part of me does. Like I know that in there, that <laughs> those structures remain in the city that is Aaron. I, you know? I can't. I can't help but like Christ. See, that's yeah. whatever, whatever, whatever the politics, and it's like, do I one hundred percent agree with everything that Christ says? No. Well, but no. <laughs> I, like, I, like, I like the guy. I I think he makes some really good points. I think I would have been great friends with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> lay down your like, nets. You had me at lay down. <laughs> like, I'm going with you, bud. Let's roll. Right. <laughs> with those long hair. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> We're going to go start some shit. We're going to yeah. go kick it with some fucking wild people. Right. So if, so if you're defining a Christian as someone who is like Christ, yeah, I've th- turned over a couple tables in my day. Like, <laughs> right, right. And uh, there's the unfortunate pattern of many of these gentle revolutionaries end up becoming martyrs for some of the most horrific evils in history. And uh, I really don't know what to do about that. But I know that it doesn't mean that the person is corrupted or the Hmm. message. I wonder if there's some like... (sighs) I wonder if there's some like wabi sabi way where like we live I, in a dis. Go ahead. I actually feel the same way about Nietzsche. Well, Nietzsche- I, I went. My brain went to Marx and like what people have done with yeah. Marx. Yeah, yeah. And he was just like this funky disabled intellectual who yeah. was upset about empire and marginalization and oppression and shit. And yeah. there's plenty of context where Marx's his words and his writings have been used for some of the most abject totalitarianism and just fucking evil that we've ever seen, you know? Say a little bit more about Nietzsche, who's a fucking fascinating character. Because Nietzsche was, you know, he was sick all of his life. He was he was not this, you know, strapping seven-foot-tall, like, Uberman. <laughs> like, he, he wasn't... Like, you, you see him, and he, he's not... And so when you understand his life when you understand how much he suffered, how absolutely brilliant it 
he was and then just to get sick over and over and over and over again to just have this incredible mind and just have your body just fail and fail and fail yeah, and, fail yeah. and so when he's talking about overcoming when he's talking mm. about this kind of rejection it's a rejection of the physicalism you know and the you know he says he says god is dead you have killed God. And that whole... Nietzsche was not moment, one to pull the punch. <laughs> and, 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 but, but what kills God? What kills God is us naming God, is us saying that we're going to put a little box around God and make God small enough for us to easily consume and control. And by the time we've done all that, God no longer exists. So the second part of God is dead is remain faithful to the earth. That's the other end of that quote or that kind of diatribe that Zarathustra goes on. Interesting. And interesting. So, so he is saying remain faithful, but he's saying don't be faithful to this, this verbal name for God that you've invented don't right. be faithful to this word because a word is just an illusion. A word is not something real. A word is something that you invent to be controlled. Remain faithful to the earth. Have faith in reality. I've never read Nietzsche closely, but every time I'm exposed to him through excerpts or through people, it's just bangers. Just yeah. banger after banger. Like, and, he, and he's a troll. He's, he's, a, he's a grade A gold standard. Book. He says things intentionally to piss off his readers, right? Um, right. Because but, he wants to get a rise out of people. Because that's well, how he a, naturally communicates, right? And, but there's a truth underneath that, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. And you have to be you have to be willing to kind of see through the trolling because he like his um his biography is the title is first of all Eke Homo. Behold the man, which is the the phrase that is used for Christ emerging from the tomb, and <laughs> and the chapter titles are like why I am so smart, why I write so many good books, why I am so wonderful, and it just just uh, and so he's like obviously like putting on this like ironic kind of egoic show. Because that's how he knows people are going to expect him to communicate, and then, but then the actual text, <laughs> the actual text when you read it, is one of the most humble things I've ever heard in my life. Because mm. he's saying, you know, everything good that I've had, everything that I that I've learned, all the stuff that you guys are praising me for, like I am acknowledging it, and this is where it comes from. And it's uh, highly recommend. Highly recommend. I've literally avoided reading him. Like, so I said a moment ago that every time I read any excerpt, fucking banger, right? Like, angsty white boy who's just like, he's really earnestly going through it. Like, it's yeah. relatable, right? Um, yeah. But I've avoided <laughs> getting into it because. <sighs> Well, I mean, I already kind of spoke to it a little bit. The madness. Like, he yeah. goes so far into nihilism or what. Like, he goes, like, through the um, the apophatic, yeah. you know, process of just goes, tearing down, tearing. All the way through nihilism until he gets to the other side. And it's not nihilism. Does he? 
Well, because that's the Does he make faith. the Kierkegaardian yeah. leap to faith? He dies! Well, faithful to the earth. <sighs> that's a banger but line, the, to be fair. The faith is to the, is to the faith and reality. It's that it's here. Right, it, right, right. It's, it, it's real, and it's very similar to Swedenborg being like, no, heaven isn't up there. Heaven is here. Heaven is, you know, spiritus juices moving around your brain, and, and <laughs> right. like, and and so there's this unification between the transcendent and the imminent, where suddenly all the arguments that we've been making, all of these kind of ontological conflicts that 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 we've had, you know, are less important than understanding where you are in your mind and how you are experiencing your direct reality. Totally. I feel like that's a big place of like where my faith walk is now of like, I think historically, maybe because I come from an Abrahamic theistic transcendent external deity, like I'm just supposed to be a Bakta. I'm just supposed to be Dharma. I'm supposed to just like do what Big Daddy tells me to do, basically, right? And I and I that was the tenor, the tone, the dynamic of my faith walk for such a long time, and largely good, right? Like that's that's a whole ass path, and it's yeah. romantic and it's shitty. It can get you there, and it's interesting that you know started in seminary and it just continues of like this turn towards like. Not that God is dead, but but if we take that sentence the way you say it and the way you mean it, and maybe the way Frederick Nietzsche meant it, that God is dead. How do you say what's the earth thing? Remain faithful to the earth. Remain faithful to the earth. It's like, yeah, like Aaron, maybe some of your super ego constructs or maybe that denomination that you were pursuing, that vocation you were pursuing, maybe even your previous relationship with deity and the way you understood him and the way yeah. you understood yourself. Maybe all that's fucking dead and destroyed Zarathustra style, right? It's just because it's all flimsy, right? It's all words and fingers pointing at moons. But the earth ain't fucking went nowhere, daddy. It ain't fucking went yeah. nowhere. And your yes. body ain't went nowhere. And this, and like, how do you say? And the eminence that is the transcendence, that is the eminence, like it's right the fuck here. And how do you, like I was thinking about this last night that I guess I must've been praying or something, um, daydreaming, whatever I was doing, that th- theological anthropology to use the fancy fucking seminary word, that is so of prime importance to me, which is to say like, what is our place in this world? Like, what is it? Like, if we're, how do you say, if you're the heart and the lungs, or if you're the skin, or if you're the fucking liver, or what the fuck ever, what, how do you just be the heart and lungs? Like, how do you be what you are, you know? And not, don't try to get tangled up in what's right and what's wrong and well, <sighs> being I a good boy problem, or like whatever. The problem is that, you know, we're not just individual cells. We're all we are all the whole body, and we're all a part of a larger body, which is right, our society. Right. And when society is sick, the individual parts aren't going to be able to know what to do. And yeah. so you get, you know, social evil and spiritual evil from this perspective are not really separable. Yeah, and I mean that's the that's the whole kind of mystical Marxism angle. Is that, <laughs> mystical Marxism, go on. Yeah. <laughs> what do but, What do you mean by that? Uh, just Just the idea that if society isn't well, the individual right. can't 
do well and that there right. is a mystic calling in bettering society yeah. and that religion is the opiate of the masses yeah but it's also you look at the places where we've had really powerful and effective social movements you know the ones that last seem to embrace religion you have they're, they're almost King. never divorced like yeah. social movements they're, they're and, almost never, religious and, and to, the, to the point that i i think it's even like a a propagandistic thing to think that any kind of leftist politics is mm. automatically agnostic and that's a really convenient story for the american religious right because mm. they then suddenly you know you can't mm. be a, be a Jesus lover and be and be liberal like it doesn't that's work. That's interesting but, to think like, about it that that's way. That's not. Well, it's, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, whether it's conscious or unconscious of like, oh no, progressive movement, social movement, you don't get to use God. You don't get to call down your fucking birthright to initiate change in yourself and in your community. No, only we get to do that with our imperial bullshit. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Very convenient. Very convenient. Right, right. I mean, because, I mean, with you and I, I mean, we're preaching to the choir that, like, like a leftist, class-based, oppression-based, critical theory, Marxist, that married with faith? Yeah. <sighs> Like, I mean, that's wow. what liberation theology is. Right. And it's been it's been a powerful tool. And, you know, I think that it can be a more powerful tool and maybe even a too powerful tool. I think, you know, it, it, it also it also like I can I can see it being it being used to kind of go over the other edge. But at the same time, we will always are religious tendencies i think are hardwired into us and if you know if it's not if it's not god it'll be something else that yeah theistic or otherwise religious tendencies or otherwise right like and so i i think if you just kind of let religion be and don't i don't know i don't know i'm I'm, i've gone beyond what i what i really feel like an expert (laughs) But <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, fair enough. Well, it occurs to me too, like part of the issue, you know, we're talking about like leftist, quote unquote, leftist politics and spirituality and the marriage of the two. I think part of it too is like, if you want a difficult project to do in your life, try to live both of those in your life. Right. Yeah. Cause I think, I think in a way it's probably easier to like, be like, Oh, I'm just going to be a Marxist. I'm cutting God out of this thing. Because I can be correct, I can know who the enemy is, yeah. and I can, yeah, I can, I can divvy out, I can divvy out the world more easily, or or vice versa. You know, like if you just go like an A or for me, I can say this shit's definitely true for me. Mm-hmm. That that if I just go spiritual and I um and I'm like apolitical or whatever, I can do this sort of accommodationist thing where I don't have to wrestle with social evil. I don't have to wrestle with that shit. I can just be like, God's got it, basically. Like, it's not it's not my um, station to fucking deal with that, you know? So, and, and the way the way that I personally deal with that is, because one of the other big leaps that Swedenborg makes from Descartes is, like, not only are the natural and spiritual world connected at infinite, you know, fractal points of contact, 
they also have this causal flow that everything reality starts off as starts as spiritual and the spiritual moves into the natural. So, you know, the assumption that's being made in the Marxist critique, which is a valid critique in a lot of ways, is that when you go up to this right. other separate Cartesian plane, you're going to be st- st- you're going to be stuck there. And that's not you know, that's a place that you can escape from reality. But the Swedenborgian perspective, because the spiritual world is so interconnected with the natural world, when you go up, when you go inward, when you go into the center of your consciousness, when you do those spiritual practices, internalizing spiritual practices, you are putting yourself on that level from which everything flows. And so when you set up your internal state to be heavenly, then you are then empowered to manifest that externally in very practical ways, like being, you know, not depressed. (laughs) (laughs) One, (laughs) being not depressed. Two, being nice to other people. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I I just, I I think people like to overcomplicate it. Right. Because if things are... Because and and sometimes things need need to be a little bit more complicated for us to get our minds around. And I think that's one of the values of yoga is it's leading you up into that internalized state through a careful, you know, systematic ritualized process. And once you're in that internal state, you can't escape because when you get to the very center, you realize that you're on the edge again. And this is my favorite Swedenborg quote. Um, okay. which I don't know how much, how much time you want to, you want to talk, but this might be a nice, a nice place to kind yeah, of. Yeah. I was about to move in that direction. So yeah. let's, let's hear what you got. Um, so my, fa- my favorite Swedenborg quote comes from the work on the brain and it's number 470 in the work on the brain. And he says in a perfect and perpetual spiral, the center is the edge and the edge is the center and what, and he's explaining how consciousness works. And he's explaining the difference between, you know, Descartes is saying the center is here. So it's basically like a whirlpool that goes in. And Swedenborg says, no, no, no. If I take a line, right, and I curve that line according to the logarithm of phi of of the golden ratio. So if I get a, a perpetual spiral going inward and I accelerate that, that swirl going inward and inward and inward and inward and inward and inward inward infinitely so that it never stops. At what point does the outermost point in the spiral and the innermost point in the spiral no longer, how fast does it have to be going? The speed of light. (laughs) So you get this, so you get this beautiful entangled system that is at one with the actual substance of the universe. And that's the system, that's kind of the mathematical model that's at the center of all of his philosophy. And so when he's talking about love and wisdom, when he's talking about like unity and division and all of, all of these like abstract things, there's, it started off as this very mathematical model where center and edge become entangled in the spiraling system. So if, if the edge and the center are 
entangled to a point where they have no physical measurable space between them, they're the same thing. The only difference being the flow of causality. And so the natural and spiritual world have exactly this right, relationship right. where at, at any given point, any given two points in the universe could be entangled according yeah. to this type of geometry. That's good. I like that. It's 17th or 18th century quantum physics. Right. <laughs> it's like a koan. It's like you can't yeah. all the way grasp it intellectually, but yeah. it, it can take you to this place of like, oh, like I kind of like intuitively get what you're getting at. I can't, yeah. you know, I can't control it with my brain. I can't fool to say that you fully get that bitch. No, but no, nobody fully gets that. <laughs> but it's, I, you know, I, I think he's right. I think that's right. how space operates. And I think, you know, people in the 20th century, you know, like Schrodinger basically held up the same, the same idea that, there's really not a difference between explaining spirituality and explaining physics. And when you get right down to it, there's no conflict. If you understand kind of how we sit in the universe and, uh, that's great. That's great for me. <laughs> that's good shit. Um, on our way out of here, is there any, um, whether it's social media, whether it's your art, whether is there anything that you would like to share with us? I'll obviously put like links and stuff in the show yeah, notes. I'll link, I'll link to my Tumblr where I've spent the last six months illustrating the Silmarillion. Which, which is I where did. this conversation supposedly started on uh, Facebook yeah. or wherever we were chatting. <laughs> it was about Tolkien stuff. So you spent the last six um, months doing the Silmarillion. Okay. Yeah. And I've been, I've been running a, a Tumblr blog posting all of those and i yeah. actually lost my my personal professional website to a hacker a couple months Whoa. ago and i've not yet gotten around to to setting it back up again so i'm uh, i'm mostly just working out of my tumblr now but i enjoy that because i think i think tumblr is the best social media that's fun yeah. <laughs> and as I said earlier, um, for y'all that are tuning in, you'll know once you get on there, Eleanor's just really talented. So definitely check her stuff out. Mm-hmm. And obviously is a good homiletician, a good orator. We've had a fantastic, lovely, so <laughs> uh, rambling conversation all over the place. Yes, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly what a podcast should be. So Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I hope everyone enjoyed this and I, I really had a great time. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, until we see you next time, it's been a pleasure and yeah. See you then. Cheers. Peace and power. Bye.